Well, good morning. Good to see you, church. I mean that. It's really good to see you. And I just want to take a minute to welcome you if you're visiting with us. Um, if you're online, join us online, or this is your first time in person with us. Uh, super glad to have you. I um, just want to let you know, though, right off the bat, that um, this is not a perfect church. Uh, this is a place where imperfect people gather to meet with a perfect God. And, and that really means two things for us. The first thing that it means is that we expect week after week as we show up together that we show up needy, all of us. And, uh, and so I was thinking about the line of the words of the song we were just singing, this idea that when the age of death is done, you understand that's describing the world we live in right now, right? When the age of death is done, we'll see his face bright as the sun. Uh, but life is hard right now, right, in this, in this age of death, this age of suffering. And I was thinking of a, of a good metaphor to describe the world we live in and also what we do in here. And I was thinking about um, the idea of a journey, um, a journey at night uh, that is long and it's raining and it's cold. And when we gather together in here, this is, this is our moment of rest, uh, to come in, to be safe, to get warm, to see one another to remind one another of where our hope is. And then we leave here and we step right back out into that journey. And so first thing is this, that we're just gonna assume that you're not okay until proven otherwise. Um, we are all fellow travelers in this journey called life and it's hard, really hard. Some of you like have tasted that this morning. But the second thing that means is that God <laughs> meets us when we gather together. And when God meets with us, he doesn't just meet to tell us how bad we've been or where we could do better, but he meets with us to comfort and to heal and to redeem. Uh, he does show us things about our life that cause pain to us and others, and in those things we repent. But what's so great about that is we've been learning through the Gospel of John is that when we repent, like there's, there's, it brings pleasure to God, like he's pleased. Like, like a loving father who's sitting on the porch waiting for his children to turn in our repentance, God comes running, and he's pleased in that. And so as we step into the Gospel of John today, I just wanted to just remind ourselves of what we're actually doing here together. And the second thing I wanted to bring up this morning is that really what we're looking at in this third resurrection appearance is really unique from the previous resurrection appearances. It's almost as if we had just read today without knowing where we are in the story. It's almost like a scene that you would have expected to happen way earlier in the Gospel of John. The disciples sitting around with Jesus, eating fish and bread. Seems pretty normal. And yet, this is one of the resurrection appearances. And so I want you to think about that today, that what we're going to see today, really, I think, is the, it allows us to see the core and the essence of who God is. And if we will take our time, to really stare at Jesus today, like really, really look deep into the scriptures to see Jesus. Here's, here's what I'm going to say. You're going to have an opportunity to see God. Not part of God, not the fringes of God, but the heart of God. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, the apostle Paul says that in him, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the more deeply we look at Jesus, the closer we are to actually seeing God. And so that's my hope for us today. 
And we're going to start in verse 1, just picking up. This is chapter 21. And really, we're going to make it two words, and then we're going to have to stop. So the first two words are, after this. And this is really important, because last week, I thought the gospel was done. At the end of chapter 20, John said, I wrote all these things down. I've written enough for you to know who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, and he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. But then it's almost like either John remembered some more things he wanted to say, or the Holy Spirit, which I believe the Holy Spirit did, inspired John to write more. And so when he says, after this, it's really important to stop and and to ask ourselves, what just happened? What was it that John was thinking about as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to keep writing? Well, it's been a really rough few weeks for the disciples. A lot of, a few ups and a lot of downs. I think John had in mind the last week in the life of Christ, a lot of big events, if you think about it, the triumphant entry on Sunday into Jerusalem. Like, think about how exciting that was for the disciples. So they're following Jesus from town to town, and some places they're accepted and others they're run out of town. But what's unique about Jerusalem on the triumphant entry is that now people who are not the regular disciples are out front celebrating Jesus, like calling him the Messiah, claiming that he's the king. And so for those disciples, like there's some excitement, like finally, right? It's go time. Jesus is about to rally the troops, rally God's people. And he's going to take a step forward, right, to establish God's kingdom on earth. Let's do this. And then quickly, that excitement began to fall off. It was a rough week. Rumors were spreading around town that they were after Jesus, looking to trap him and, and arrest him. And disciples were feeling that anxiety all week long. And then you get to Thursday night to sit down at what should have been a joyful celebration of God's goodness in the Passover meal, God's rescue, only for Jesus to do what? Hey guys, that bread you're eating, that's my body, it's about to get broken. That cup that you're drinking, that's my blood that will be poured out pretty soon for the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins. They experienced the betrayal, the all-out betrayal of one of their own. Man, that's hard thought we could trust him did you see it coming no did you see it coming ah, maybe and then when jesus is arrested this cohort of soldiers in the dark with torches come and arrest their leader and drag him off peter somebody that they really leaned into as a leader of the twelve denies Jesus three times and if that's not bad enough remember the conversation around that Passover meal Peter you're going to deny me and and Peter said what there's no way I'm going to deny you they watched one of their very own deny Jesus three times they were there at least John was there close enough Peter was close enough to see the beating the humiliation the soldiers spitting on Jesus and making fun of him and then of course the cross which gave way to only what? The silence of the tomb. And they were struggling with the silence. You read about the two disciples who were on their road to Emmaus. They were walking out of that silence. They were talking about what, can you just believe what just happened? I thought he was going to establish God's kingdom there. Now where is he? Disciples gathered in the upper room, 
what, what do we do now? What, does anybody, did he say, what, what do we do? Where is he? And they were just sitting in that silence. But then we have these resurrection appearances, right? So we're back up. It's exciting. But he doesn't stay. He's gone. Now what do we do? Do we wait? Is there going to be another one? And then there's another. A week later, there's another resurrection appearance in the upper room. There he is. All right, he's here. Oh, wait, he's gone. But before leaving, he told them, guys, I want you to go to Galilee. The next time you see me will be at Galilee. And so John begins this last chapter after this. That's a lot, isn't it? After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for Galilee. It's the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. And that's really important. What John is going to show us is that this is a different way from the way that Jesus has revealed himself so far. This, in this particular situation, here's the way. Because the last two looked a lot like each other. Upper room, doors are locked, Jesus comes in anyway, reveals himself, opens their eyes. Whoo, big moment, and he's gone. But this one's going to be different. So we read in verse 2 that Simon Peter was there. Thomas, called the twin, remember him from last week, poor doubting Thomas. He's more like honest Thomas. We got Thomas, we got Peter, we've got Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee. Then we have the sons of Zebedee, which you may or may not know. That's James and John, two brothers, sons of Zebedee. And then you've got two other disciples who were there together. And then this is where Peter says, verse 3, I'm going fishing. I don't know what the question was. It might have been, Jesus isn't here yet. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Peter's like, I'm going fishing. It might have been. More than likely, Jesus isn't here yet. I'm kind of getting hungry. These guys didn't have a job. Like, think about that. The guy who was keeping the, the bank for them, Judas, was a thief, stealing their money. Like, it wasn't like they had all these options and could just, you know, get on their Chick-fil-A app and order lunch. Like, they legitimately were hungry. I think that's probably the question. I'm hungry. You hungry? I'm hungry. What do you want to do for lunch? And Peter's like, I know what to do. I'm going fishing. What I was doing before I met Jesus, that's how we fed ourselves. I'm going fishing. And so there was the other disciples there, and they said to Peter, what? And then we'll go with you then. Let's go. So seven of them, they head out at night to go fishing. They went out, they got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Okay? So it wasn't unusual to go out at night and fish. That was actually quite common, right? That was actually a better time to fish. It's, you don't have the sun out beating down on you. Uh, the wind has settled, so the seas are more calm, and the fish are usually bite pretty good at night, so it would be the optimal time to go fishing, but they end up catching zilch, nothing. Then we get to verse 4 that tells us, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So everything within me just wants to give these guys a break here and a benefit of the doubt. Right? They have been through a lot. And they're tired. They've been up all night long. And the light is pretty dim. I mean, it's daybreak. So that it, it makes sense that they wouldn't recognize Jesus right off the bat. But they, they see somebody on the shore. and I don't know who that is. Somebody over there. Good morning. Morning. Close enough to yell, but probably not close enough to recognize. And Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? This is really important. 
When God asks questions in the Bible, it's not for his information, it's for ours. It's like when God comes to Adam in the garden and is like, where were you? It's not because God was curious and didn't know where Adam was. He wanted Adam to think about where he had been, right? And so this is Jesus, God speaking here, asking the question, do you have any fish for them to acknowledge, man, we've been out here all night long and we haven't caught a thing. And they answered him, no. So he says then, in verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This is a big, big deal, okay? wasn't like, hey, you see that point over there? If you go over there and fish for a minute, you might catch one or two. This is a dramatic transition from catching nothing all night long to now they've caught so many that they can't get the fish in the boat. Like it's in that kind of a boat, it's open air boat, wooden hull, rocks and moves with the water. The fish were so heavy that if they had pulled the fish into the boat, it probably would have tipped the boat over and they'd have gone over. It's a big deal. Then in verse 7, things begin to change with this big catch of fish. Verse 7 says that the disciple whom Jesus loved, so John's talking about himself, he therefore said to Peter. Now, this is really important. There's something unique going on in the relationship between John and Peter throughout all these resurrection appearances. And I love the way John tells the story. It makes what's already believable even more believable. He's just capturing all the details of what happened. He's not trying to sell anything. He's just trying to tell you what happened. So we go back to the tomb, right? Peter, John, they hear the tomb is empty. They come running. John gets there first, slides up to the tomb, looks in. Sure enough, it's empty. Here comes Peter. Boom, blowing right by him. Oh, my gosh. John comes in after him. John looks at the the linen strips on the ground. He looks at the face shroud folded up nice and neat. And John says, that's when I believed. I believe now. And so John has been capturing not just the events, but even the way that him and Peter have been interacting. And there's a really good chance, and I think we're going to see this next week, that Peter is dealing with some stuff right now. I think he's dealing with a lot of guilt and shame. I really do. And I think that's why next week Jesus is going to like just show up and meet with him. I mean, you can't go from denying Jesus three times to then hanging out with the same group of people and it not coming up. At least in Peter's mind, like, what do the guys think about me? And I'm sure he's reeling from a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, especially when he sees Jesus resurrected. Like, just think about that. And so for whatever the reasons are, I think that could be part of it, John doesn't turn to the other six and go, hey, guys, it's Jesus. He turns to Peter. He turns to Peter, and he says to Peter, that's him. It's the Lord. It's Jesus. Like, he knew Peter needed to see Jesus. As excited as he was for himself, he knew, he knew Peter needed to see him. So he says, Peter, look, it's him. Now I love what happens next. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Love this. He actually already had his bathing suit on. But out of his respect for Jesus, he throws on clothes, right? It's going to make the swim even harder. And I love what John says. He doesn't just edge himself over to the side of the boat and get in the water. 
He doesn't even dive in. John's like, he threw himself in. He couldn't get to Jesus fast enough. Give me my outer garment. Just goes in. He cannot get to Jesus fast. I love that. And I think it tells us where Peter is in his heart. I gotta get to him. And verse 8 says that the other disciples then came to the shore in the boat and then they dragged the net behind them full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. That's not far from land if you're in a boat. That's a 300-foot swim with your coat on, right, for Peter. And there's no previous uh, descriptions of, of Peter being a fit man. He wasn't training for the triathlon, so this was no big deal. It's like John wants us to see Peter's heart was leading him. This wasn't a matter of whether or not I can swim that far. I'm going. Boom, gone. John and the other disciples, they drag the net in behind the boat up to the shore, drag this net of fish up to the edge of the shore. I think John is telling this story as honestly as he can. Now, what is so beautiful about the resurrection appearances that we're seeing from the Gospel of John is how personal they are. So Jesus isn't just showing up to prove something. He's showing up in a very personal way to meet these people where they are. Like, think about Mary. Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. Seeing him wasn't enough. It wasn't until he said her name the way that only Jesus can say her name, Mary. That was very personal. Think about Thomas. Just a week before, he's like, I'll never believe it. I know you guys are saying it's real. I know you're saying you saw it, but I'll never believe it unless I get to, like, touch his wounds. So what does Jesus do a week later? Shows up. Hey, Thomas, come here. Come touch my wounds. And now here in this situation, as you listen to the story unfold, it begins to remind me of another story. One that took place at the very beginning for these guys. Luke captures it in Luke 5. This is the point in time where Jesus first calls these guys to come follow him. Listen to this story, but before we start reading it, I want to ask you to do something. I'm going to invite you to do something. As I read these words, you can keep your eyes open, you can close your eyes. I want you to picture a scene. And I want you to just kind of see yourself maybe in a boat 100 feet offshore, and you can see on the scene, there's on the shore, there's like a, a shoreline, there's a little fire ring, and there's like eight guys gathered around it, okay? just want you to think about that scene that we're reading in John 21 as I read about Luke chapter 5. So in Luke 5 verse 1, we read this, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And, when, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. It was probably morning time, about the same time of day. They'd already come in from fishing. The boats were parked. Getting into one of the boats, which was actually Simon, Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. It's always, I've, I've never noticed this. Peter goes out in the boat with Jesus in this scene. Peter's the one navigating the boat. He says, Peter, hey, let's go out. Set, set an anchor just a little bit offshore. 
And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now, put out into the deep water, and let's go fishing. Do you get the scene? So Jesus, there's two boats. Peter's there. He's like, hey, will you take me out here in your boat just a little ways? Peter does so. They get just a little ways out, set anchor. And then basically this boat becomes a stage, and the water becomes an amphitheater for Jesus to begin teaching all the people who are there on the bank. And after he's done teaching, he looks to Peter and says, all right, Peter, let's go fishing. Let's go out a little further. Let's go out into the deep water. Verse 5 says, and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Does that sound familiar, right? But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. (laughs) So much so, in verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. This probably meant they were too far to, like, talk, and they were like, That's Peter waving to James and John. Get in the other boat and get out here. I love this. And they came and they filled both boats (laughs) so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This moment... Peter was able to see Jesus not just as a rabbi or a common man. He saw him as as, as a holy man, so much so that Peter automatically saw his own sin, fell on his knees in worship and repentance. Verse 9 says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, one, do you see how personal this is? You see now why Peter jumped in the water? Like, this is, this is like Peter, James, and John, Jesus calling them to follow him 2.0. I know who this guy is. And the second thing I want you to see, and this is something that I think that we tend to do oftentimes in church, it's that saying, uh, missing the forest for the trees. You heard that saying? Did I say it the right way? You miss the trees for the forest, the forest for the trees. The idea is this. You get so caught up in the details of a thing and focused, hyper-focused on a detail or a thing that you miss the big picture. I think we can do that with the resurrection. So, so on one hand, what will happen sometimes in church is we don't think about the resurrection, we don't lean into it, we don't, we don't go to the idea of the resurrection right, as a source of like power until Easter. So we never mention the resurrection. On the other hand, if we become so hyper-focused on the resurrection, we never see the point of the resurrection, which is a restored relationship with God. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's no longer showing up to to prove himself by showing wounds. We're going to see here, he's actually showing up to have breakfast in the most profound way. So look at verse 9 with me back in John. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. 
Now, we'll come back to this next week. I think there's something significant about the charcoal fire. The last time that John mentioned a charcoal fire is when Peter was in the courtyard denying Jesus, gathered around a charcoal fire. I don't know if you've ever um, smelt something and it reminded you of something else. Like, oh, it reminds me of Grandma. Oh, that smells like Dad's cologne. Oh, that reminds me of a trip I took. That's because the way your brain stores smells, it's, it's in the same place that your brain stores memories. And so smells are often associated with your memories. And so there's, there's almost no way possible that Peter's sitting around this charcoal fire not thinking about the last charcoal fire. Okay? And we're going to see that next week. So I just wanted to point that out here. So John says this is important detail. Once again, we're here at the charcoal fire. And there's already fish laid out and bread. And then Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So whether they're about to eat the fish that Jesus already had or the fish that they caught because Jesus said, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, Jesus provides the fish for this meal either way. So verse 11 says, so Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net of fish ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. Remember what happened back in Luke 5? The nets were tearing. Boats were sinking. This time it doesn't happen. Jesus says in verse 12, and listen, this is, this is really where we're landing today. It's so super simple, yet it is so, so profound. He simply says, come and have breakfast. And then what? What's next? What's the catch? Nothing. Breakfast is the catch. Time with you is the catch. Showing up with one, that's the catch. So you just want me to sit down and eat? Yeah. Are you hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. Okay, then. Sit down and eat. Come, eat, breakfast. And then John wants us to know, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now what I want to do is I'm going to look at um, a passage from Isaiah. It's actually in Isaiah 55. And I didn't discover these three verses until we were going through the Revelation series a few years ago. Those of you who've been around for a while, you remember going through the book of Revelation. There's a point in the book of Revelation towards the end where Isaiah 55 is quoted. And so when I was studying for that Sunday, I went back and was digging into Isaiah 55. And I have to admit that the first time I read through these three verses, it was, it was, it was a paradox that didn't make sense. Is one of those situations where the Bible's like saying something and then it's saying something. You're like, wait, that doesn't fit into an equation. Like I'm, brain's kind of struggling to get what the Bible's saying here. But the more I dug into Isaiah 55, the more I began to understand the gospel itself. I want you to listen to Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. 
come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You hear the paradox there? Come buy what you have no money to buy, but come anyway and buy it. And it, and it won't be scraps. It won't be garage sale items. It'll actually be choice wine, choice milk, the best of the best. Come buy what you can't afford. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Now listen to verse 3. This is the gospel. Incline your ear and come to me and hear. Okay, what else? That's it. Come to me and just listen. Okay, and then what happens? That your soul may live. That is so simple yet so stinking profound. That's the gospel. Come and buy what you can't afford but is the best thing that for you. There's not better anything out there for you. Come and buy what you can't afford that is the best and do it without any money. How do I do that? You come and you hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Now to help us understand even more profoundly what's happening here, I'm going to read a quote from a theologian. His name is C.W. Walther. And this actually was from a book um, that was compiled of his lectures it's called the proper distinction between law and the gospel so there's it's proper to, to understand the difference between the law and the gospel and here's what he writes i'll never forget reading this this quote he says the law says to us i will quench the thirst of your soul and appease your hunger that's good news but it is not able to accomplish this because it always adds, all this you shall have if you obey my commands. So the law makes really great promises to us. Everything, as a matter of fact, that Jesus is promising about abundant life is available to you as a promise from the law. But the catch is this. The law says, is this what you want? You want this choice food? You want this right quenching of thirst yes okay all you have to do then is what obey the law ah, i'm broke that's where we empty our pockets we go man i don't have anything and so while the law makes a great promise it still leaves us hungry thirsty and desperate and yet he says the gospel declares listen to this, this is so simple yet so profound Take what I give, and you will have it. That's the end of the sentence. Take what I'm offering. This is Jesus. Take what I am offering, and it's yours. Period. Does that mess with you a little bit? It does. That's not transactional. 
You're not trading anything to Jesus because you got nothing to trade. He's offering something that's of so high value. There's nothing in your life that's even close to comparing that you could trade or barter with. And I love we're seeing this so simply played out in this resurrection scene. The invitation is simple, isn't it? Hey, guys. Come, sit. Let's eat. Let me share a meal with you. One you obviously couldn't provide for yourselves. You're weary and you're tired from trying to provide this for yourselves. You're exhausted. Listen, church, you're exhausted from doing this. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're weary. Some of you may have even gotten to the place where you've kind of given up. I guess I'll just fake it. Everybody else seems to have it together at church. I can't get it together. I worked my tail off and I can't make it happen. So I'm just going to pretend like I have it together. But you're exhausted on the inside. You're weary. You've been fishing all night long. You've got nothing to show for it. And Jesus is saying to you, come, just take and eat. What's the price? You can't afford it. It's okay. I paid for it. I provided it. Okay. What do you need from me? You just sit down and eat. Man, that's good news. Just needs you to sit down and eat. I believe that in this moment we're seeing the purpose of the resurrection, to walk in relationship with God. And I think we're staring right into the heart of God himself. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus. This is what Jesus is doing. Walking in relationship with God is not a side hustle that God has. It's not a peripheral characteristic of who God is. It's at the center of who God is. He is a God who communes, who relates, who walks with. God can't walk outside of relationship. He has a relationship with himself. And he extends that relationship to you and to me. And that's the point of the resurrection. God meets us in our deepest need by graciously offering to us what we can't provide for ourselves. Forgiveness of sin, redemption, healing, eternal life. And then he graciously invites us to take what he offers and have it and then walk in relationship with him. That's why this is a a place where the needy gather. That's why this is a place where the broken gather. Those whose souls are thirsty and hungry and starving and a place where marriages come in broken, tattered. Whatever you're going through in life right now that seems absolutely impossible, you give it your best effort only to find what? It didn't accomplish anything. That's why we gather together, church. Imperfect people gathering together to meet with a perfect God who says this to you and to me every Sunday. Come take and eat. Come take and eat. I'm going to ask a few questions for you and I to do some reflecting, and I'm going to add a little commentary around each question. And so if you're willing, I just want to invite you maybe just to kind of block out lunch and the person beside you and last week and next week, and maybe just think for a minute about your own relationship with God. Here's the first question. 
Are you walking in a personal, non-transactional relationship with Jesus? So it's got to be personal first. This can't be your grandma's relationship with Jesus or your spouse's relationship with Jesus or your friend's relationship with Jesus. Are you walking in your very own personal, but not just personal, non-transactional relationship with Jesus where you're no longer trying to barter with him? You know what I mean? In your prayer life, if you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. I'm going to pray seven days a week this week, Jesus, and and then I'm going to trust that you'll give me something I'm asking for. That's transactional. You know what? I'm really, really going to do it this time. I promise. Just forgiveness one more time. I got it. I promise. I got it. That's transactional. You're trying to barter with Jesus. Are you walking in a personal, non-transactional relationship with Jesus, or are you still trying to obey the law to get Jesus to like you? If so, you either don't believe the gospel or you've lost sight of it. Because that's not what the gospel says. Obeying the law will not make Jesus like you anymore. It's good news, isn't it? Second question is this. What's keeping you from taking Jesus at his offer? It could be likely one of two things. One, it could sound too good to be true. It's it's just got to be more to it than that. I need transaction. I got, I got to be able to at least give something for this. It's a $100 meal. At least take 43 cents. I'll feel better about things. So, so maybe that's for you. It's just like, it's just too simple. And, and at the core of that, maybe you just don't want to admit that you're bankrupt. Second thing is, is this idea that maybe you're thinking about how much you've done in life and how much has been done to you and you need it for some reason to be more complicated. To undo the mess that you're in, it just needs to be more complicated. I need 10 steps or 12 steps or 20 steps or I need, some, I need to be able to sweat in this deal. I'm okay with Jesus like getting me the last five yards across the finish line, but I got to put some effort into this deal. After all that I've been through, after all that I've done, this is just too easy. So what is it that's keeping you from taking up Jesus on his offer? Does it sound too good to be true? Yes. That's why we call it the good news. That's why it's not just news. It's good news. And the third question is this. Whether you are willing to jump ship like Peter and just throw yourself into your relationship with Jesus or gently glide to the shore like the rest of the guys. They all made it. I want you to hear this. Jesus is calling you to himself today. Are you ready to accept the invitation from Jesus? Come, take, and eat. Maybe you're like, hurry up and get done, start praying so I can go grab a prayer partner. I love the Peters in the room. You're going to get a chance to do that. Prayer partners will be at the front. Our elders will be out in the commons area. Or maybe you're just letting all this sink in. You're just in that boat that's just kind of gently gliding to the shore. The invitation is the same. Come, take, and eat. Let's pray together. Our worship team is going to come back up and lead us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to see who you are. Father, you're not a God who barters with his people. 
if we just really want to get into that, God, it's because, honestly, we've got nothing to offer you. There's nothing we could do to convince you to love us. There's nothing we could do to convince you to accept us. We are literally trying to buy something we can't afford. And we're so thankful, God, that at the core of your being, you desire to be in a relationship with us. And so you sent your son to pay the fee, to pay the price, to pay the debt for this thing that we call eternal life. God, thank you for showing us a little bit about ourselves. Father, at the end of the day, we are all tired and weary from being up all night long trying to provide for ourselves. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you meet us in the morning. You meet us with grace and mercy and a very tender invitation to come sit down and eat. So Jesus, as we sing this next song, um, it's about you. Um, I pray that you would draw us to you. We pray it all in your powerful name. Amen.